Hey, Mary Beth. I just wanted to tell you, I loved your question on Thursday to Judy. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And her answer was spot on too. So it just kind of brought everything like what a lot of us are feeling and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. I yeah. That. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for being courageous enough to ask it. You know, <laughs> that's yeah, a hard question. Got into me. It was very bold. I don't know what got into me. I really don't. <laughs> no, it was perfect. I mean, it was just, yeah. What the question that needed to be asked. So. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Ugh. It is hot and muggy here. What else is, is, is everybody else experiencing hot and muggy? What's going on? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm outside. Okay. <laughs> where is, where is, where are you, Blair? I'm in Michigan and we just oh. had like this downpour and have high winds. Mm. I guess there's like a tropical storm that affected our area, like the Great Lakes region. Oh, was it the the hurricane Chris, that came up from New Orleans? I think so, yeah. Mm. So I wonder if we'll be getting it on the East Coast. It's not that humid here in New York. No. Yeah, it was just all of a sudden it hit. It was, yeah. Mm. <laughs> So we start with our chance. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues in the many fields of knowledge, all our steps on the path to omniscience, may these arise in a clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Just like the six ornaments and two supreme ones who beautify our world, 
You were their equal in your mastery of compassion, learning, and realization, yet you practiced sitting in the forest in sacred solitude. Wong Chenpo, who perfected samsara and nirvana in the state of Dharmakaya, Trime, Ozer, stainless light. At your feet I pray, grant your blessings so that I may realize the natural state, the true nature of mind. So uh, tonight, we'll, we'll pick up from where we uh, didn't finish last week. So let's start with figuring out what we did and didn't do last week, because I think I may have uh, circulated some inaccurate information in the reading reminder. My recollection is that last week we did we finished up class six, part two, the view that dwells in neither of the three extremes. No, just kidding, two extremes. And uh, then we did uh, in class seven, the generation and perfection stages. And we did the three concentrations of the generation stage and the simple practice of the generation and perfection stages. All that Vajrayana stuff. Does that sound right? And we did not do the past stainless meditation concentration, nor the three aspects of meditative concentration. Is that right? Does anybody think that we did the past stainless meditation concentration? No, we didn't do that. I don't think we did number five either, though. The simple practice of generation and completion. I'm not, yeah, I don't think so, but I'm not sure. Uh -huh. Let's take a peek at that on 257. And Emily, are you recording? Yes. All right. Okay. So 257. For those unable to engage immediately in the extensive generation stage or who devote themselves exclusively to perfection stage with only slight elaboration, I shall explain how through meditating on a single deity one meditates on all of them. So here he went through a little meditation on Samantabhadra. Does that ring any bells for anyone? What do folks think? I feel like we did this last week. Yeah, I thought we did too. I think so. I think we just sort of went, went for it because it was fast and uh, short. I remember talking about in the heart center, there was another little version of Samatabhadra. Is that ringing any bells? The size of a thumb? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now people... Last... Sorry? Derek, my memory is that we, last week, from the 
great chariot excerpts, we did the three concentrations of the generation stage, but didn't do the simple practice from the auto commentary. We just went over that part in the verse section. That's my memory from last week. So do you remember this, uh, us discussing this visualization of Samantha Bhadra and how in his heart sent, first we have the Samantha Bhadra in union. Sort and then in its heart center, a small Samantha Bhaja. Yeah, yes. Okay, so that, that is that little chapter called The Simple Practice of Generation and, and Perfection Stage. No. I'm just not remembering from last week, like this thing with the symbol syllables A A A. Nope. And I I'm like really into this class, Derek, and my notes stop after the three concentrations of the generation stage. Just nothing after that. So I wouldn't have not taken any notes. Okay, so let's let's do that other little chat and complete our Vajrayana exploration. So uh as I said, for those who want to do a simple practice on one single deity that sort of uh, combines all the aspects of practice, of Vajrayana practice in it. Uh, Longchen represents this simple meditation practice. So I'm on page 257 in the, in the commentary. It's called the simple practice of the generation and perfection stages. And for those of you who are on uh, electronic devices, it's the third to last section of the commentary, right after the three concentrations of the generation stage, and just before the mind and the objects that appear to it. You, you okay there, Cynthia? Good. Okay, so first, once you take refuge, generate the attitude of bodhicitta. Then, as is described in the Guya Garva, uh, the rootless nature of the mind is of all phenomena the root. <laughs> it's just sort of like uh, Madhyamaka humor, by the way. Um, the mind itself is of the nature of a syllable, a syllable that is a precious wish fulfilling cloud. So, this is just sort of to loosen up the mind get your mind sort of un unfixed a little bit. Most, most of us have minds that are sort of fixated on things being a certain way. So this just sort of stir it up, play with it. Get introduced this notion of uh, the mind being rootless and all phenomena being rootless. And because they're based on the mind and the mind arises from a syllable we talked about last week, sound being the first aspect of manifestation from emptiness and ah, which is the short a and it's the first letter of the Sanskrit alphabet, is neither empty nor not empty, not even in the center can it be observed. All things are but names, all Buddhas dwell in strings of syllables. And a little reference to this idea of uh, in Vajrayana practice, a common thing is to chant this, the alphabet, 
which is sort of funny, you know, in English, we, we have a little song, a little ditty for children to memorize the alphabet with a melody to it. But in, uh, in Vajrayana practice, you say the alphabet and uh, it has a representation of uh, the, the uh, consonants are the male Buddhas and the vowels are the female Buddhas. They're outnumbered, of course, as, as you can imagine consonants far out number of vowels of course but um they do have equal representation through a, a, a system never mind and uh, you say it very quickly it's it's this very cool saying if you ever go to an abhisheka uh they'll say the the syllables and you can barely hear what they say anyway pronouncing the syllables ah 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 which is the short a three times and then resting in the state in which phenomena are neither one nor many. So starting from uh, emptiness, resolving all dharmas into emptiness, one should meditate on the vast abyss of the unclouded sky. Abyss is a little bit negative, but it's just sort of like trying to clear the slate and experience the sky-like, space-like expanse. The center of this untrammeled expanse Again, a little bit of sort of Vajrayana humor because space and the sky has no center. But so, uh, the key is not to spend a lot of time trying to find the center, but just to go for it. Um, where the sun and the moon are shining, that's a hint where that center might be. One should meditate on oneself as the glorious Samanta Bhajra, the Dharmakaya Buddha of the Nyingma tradition. Um, inseparable from Samatha Bhadri, the female Dharmakaya Buddha, so in union, as I'm sure you're familiar with the imagery, they're in sexual union. Uh, his, Samatha Bhadri's hands are in the position of meditative absorption, which is the, the mudra that looks like this, the meditation mudra, cosmic mudra. Um, and being of the nature of the Dharmakaya, he's without ornaments or garments, totally naked. Five colored beams of light radiate from him, forming a tent-like luminous sphere, wherein, so uh, <clears throat> you begin with these two central figures, and then you develop the palace, what's called the palace, the mandala within which they dwell. Light rays beam out of five colors, and uh, they form a tent-like luminous sphere, tent-like in the sense of being uh, sort of uh, see-through, sort of um, luminescent, not in the shape of a tent, but in sort of the material of a tent where you can see light through it. Luminous sphere, wherein there's a central palace. So uh, this notion of there being a palace of the, the deity. Um, from which rays of light pervade all the reaches of space. So light rays just beaming out all over in all directions to the end of space. The whole of phenomenal existence blazes into light. So that lights everything up. Everything is a light with those light rays. One should then recite Om Ah Hung Ah Ah as much as one can which generally means at least 108 times. You have a mala that has, uh, so uh, you do pr one proverbial, proverbially, you do one round of a mala, 
and Amala has 108 beads on it. The eight are sort of extra just to make sure uh, that you do a proper 100, but you count 100, you don't count the eight. After which one should rest in the nature of space. So recite the mantra as much as you can and then just rest. And meditating then this way, one meditates on all the mandalas of the Buddha, for one meditates upon their very source, Samatha Bhajri and Samatha Bhajra, as is said in the Guya Garba, the main tantra of the Nyingma tradition for the uh, development stage practices, in the clear expanse of the mandala space with sun and moon. Meditate upon the king of primal wisdom with his queen, Samatha Bhajri, Bhajra, with Bhajri. In this way, you will meditate on all the mandalas of the victorious ones. Proceeding in this way, it is through meditating on a single perfection stage that one meditates on them all. Uh, Nyingma is well known for having uh, uh, emphasis on simplicity. And so by doing this one, that's the essence of all of them. You, in essence, do all of them. In the heart of Samatha Bhajra, thus visualized, there is a sphere of light ablaze with the radiance of the five primordial wisdoms, luminous and free of thought. So uh, another sphere that's very small inside the heart center of Samatha Bhajra. One should focus one's mind on it without distraction for as long as the breath is slowed down until it is motionless. All thoughts vanish and one remains for days in the state of ultimate reality, that primordial wisdom of equality, which is beyond both one and many. So the sort of perfection stage of uh, meditation is when the breath slows and then finally stops and one can remain breathless in uh, meditative samadhi for days when you're a complete adept in such a practice. One will perceive, perceive lights and rainbows and Buddha fields. By uh, perfecting this practice in this way, one's vision will expand in a sort of unusual way. And as day and night mingle together, one will remain in a continuous state of luminosity in which there is no fluctuation. You'd be basically oblivious to day and night, just in a, in a realm of luminosity. Un, un, not impacted by light and dark externally. Thus one's mind will dwell in self-cognizing or self-aware primordial wisdom, the primordial wisdom that cognizes itself distinctly. So the, uh, the, that wisdom aspect of mind that knows itself furthermore calling to mind that the nature of the mind is thus from the very beginning one will understand that the accomplishment of Buddhahood does not come from somewhere else. Uh, so realizing that uh, Buddhahood comes from the mind, realizing the mind. And uh, primordial wisdom arising from that experience of mind, realizing its own nature. Another quote from the Guru Garba, perfect Buddhahood will not be found at any of the four times or the ten directions, the nature of one's mind is perfect Buddha. Do not look for Buddhahood elsewhere. Through such practice of generation and perfection, 
practitioners are connected with all the mandalas of the generation and perfection stages. They cause one to gain all accomplishments. No hindrances are created by them by way of even slight omissions or additions to the ritual and so on. They have endless beneficial qualities. Since one is linked thereby to all the mandalas, all the mandalas one will attain. No faults or defects will occur as through additions or omissions to a ritual. So uh, it seems that the generation stage was the outer uh, meditation on uh, using them uh, with the outer uh, expanse of the spherical tent, luminous spherical tent, and the palace, and the, the mantra, Omahong Ah And then the completion or perfection stage was the internal uh, Samatha Bhajra in the center of the heart. I'm sorry, the sphere of light in the heart center of Samantha Bhajra. I think we we did not do that last time. I agree. Thank you for that correction and thereby we avoided additions or omissions. And now let's go to chapter Chapter 11, The Past. Anybody think that we did this chapter already? Anybody think that we didn't? Sorry, Derek, what, what page? One, called again? 127, The Path, Stainless Meditative Concentration. We didn't do that. Okay, so we have a couple of chapters on meditation that are nice. The Path Stainless Meditative Concentration, Chapter 11, and the Chapter 12, the three aspects of meditative concentration. And realistically speaking, we'll probably just do that tonight and we'll come back to my mind, my mind next week and expand our sense of time by week. So page uh, 2, 127 rather, the path stainless meditative concentration. Pull out my notes here. So earlier on, I sort of glossed sections of the text and didn't go through each line. But now we're in a material that's pretty um, detailed, more detailed, unusual, interesting. And so it pretty much goes through line by line, if that's okay. The quality of things is seen, referring to what one experienced in the, at the end of the last chapter when experienced the uh, transcending of the um, uh, when it, when experienced the view that transcends the two extremes at the end of, end of the last chapter and dwelling in neither of the two extremes uh, so then one uh, to rest correctly in this nature that nature that's beyond the two extremes is of great importance. So having understood the view, 
then we put that into practice. Meditation is explained to beings according to their level of ability. According, uh, sorry, those of highest capability gain freedom through the realization of the fundamental nature. They behold this nature in a manner that is free from both a subject and an object of the meditation. Phenomenal appearance becomes for them the ground's free openness. Their minds are spared from all exertion, awareness free from bias. Leaning flows like an endless stream. This is people like Longchenpa himself and Jigme Lingpa and uh, Rongzong Pandita, who at the age of three started speaking in Sanskrit. Weirdos like that. Anyway, there's no pause in meditation. No difference in in or out of session can be recognized. All is free and open. Samantabhadra's field. And free of measure and description, the self-arisen ground of vast expanse for those who from the very outs, from the outset stay within this state of suchness. There's no deviation. There's no place where they may deviate. There's no exertion, no progressing, no attaining, and no non-attaining. Thus they know with certainty and free. This they know with certainty and free from expectation of results. Perfect Buddhas in that very instant. A yoga such as this is but an infinite expanse. So the way to uh, make this at all relatable to those of us who are not of the highest capacity is to view this as a description of the result. Ideally, the end of our path of um, those of us of moderate and basic scope must strive in meditation. They must strain by various means until their ego clinging sinks into the ultimate expanse. Let your ego clinging sink into the ultimate expanse of meditation. But this is now explained in greater detail. Beings are led into samsara by injurious, discursive thought. That this might now subside, these beings must engage in concentrative methods in order to overcome that discursive thought that drags us down into samsara, the vast expanse of wisdom, free from all extremes, then will finally appear. Defilement is suppressed by calm abiding. It is uprooted by deep insight. little summary right to the pith of the, uh, the way the path of meditation works is that we suppress defilement through calm abiding or shamatha, and then we upright uh, defilement, including ignorance, by deep insight. So shamatha gets our minds pacified or tamed to a point where we can then begin to glimpse the true nature of our mind. For those of highest scope, injurious discursiveness arises as the dharmakaya. So their discursiveness is liberating. For them, there's no good or bad. They don't need to train in antidotes. Those of mediocre scope must meditate upon the limpid state wherein both calm abiding and deep insight are united. So that's the key, is getting to a point where we uh, bring together calm abiding shamatha and vipassana and deep insight. Discursiveness, good and bad, dissolves within that ultimate expanse. The realization of this union rises similar to space. So space is this very common analogy for the meditative mind. 
no, no way of uh, defining space. So no way of pinpointing the mind of meditation, of that union of shamatha and vipassana. Derek, I have a question. Isn't it, is it also this, I know Longchenpa's name is often, like it translates as being like infinite space or something like that. Is there a sort of connection in terms of this, uh, that notion of infinite space and his actual naming, you know, how that happens in some of the verses about him that uh, they make that connection. I noticed there was a few references to infinite expanse and I thought that was sort of the translation of his name. I think, so I think maybe he's uh, making a, taking advantage of the fact that that is his name as well as a very important, uh, the sort of, a key common analogy for the meditative state in the Dzogchen tradition or Nyingma Ati tradition. Vast expanse of space. Uh, those of basic scope strive for some calm abiding in terms of the order of shamatha vipassana. We start with shamatha whereby one easily achieves stability and concentration <clears throat> easily. Then one grows accustomed to deep insight, all discerning, whereby all outer and inner states of mind arise as the nature free and open of the ground. So ideally then, uh, having experienced the stability of shamatha, one begins to see the groundless nature of the mind as being the nature of the ground, the way that it's used here in Longchenpa's text and in this tradition of the, the Nyingma, the ground being the, the ultimate nature of phenomena, being beyond the two extremes. Thus it is important to discern the scope of beings. Now the meditation will be taught. For those who are of moderate ability, it is as when the water is disturbed by waves the stars reflect that they are indistinct and trembling. So too, when the untamed mind is troubled and excited, immersed in every kind of mental agitation, primordial wisdom, clear and limpid, nature of the mind, together with the star-like powers of vision and of preternatural cognition, fail to manifest. So uh, when our mind is stirred up by discursive thought, the wisdom of deep insight is obscured and we don't experience the results of the samadhi that comes about through the union of shamatha vipassana, which leads to preternatural cognition. Therefore, it is of the greatest moment or importance that the mind rests evenly, one-pointed and unmoving. With one's body in the seven-point posture, which is our traditional meditation instruction on the posture, the seven points of Barochana, stable like Sumeru, king of the mountains in the cosmology of Buddhism, the center of the universe is the Mount Meru, un unmoving, unshakable, with the sense powers left untrammeled, so not, not manipulating the senses. Like a pool in which the stars are mirrored, one should settle without sleepiness or agitation. The two main faults of meditation are dullness or agitation from all conceptual elaboration, not indulging in all sorts of 
uh, thoughts about what's happening or not happening in the nature of the mind, luminous and empty like the limpid sky. So those two qualities of being luminous or knowing what's going on at the same time, having no uh, essence, not findable, is the nature of the mind. This is the primordial state, the one and single nature, the dharmakaya, with the apprehending subject. And we're going to see a lot of use, I guess mostly next week now, of this term, apprehending an apprehender and apprehended. But it's the way that uh, in, in the technical language of Buddhism that Longchenpa is well-versed in and is comfortable using and describing uh, mental experience. It's um, the way of describing cognition is to apprehend someone, is that the mind is the apprehender as the subject, and it apprehends its objects, which are the apprehended. Let's see. Um, the dharmakaya, where the apprehending subject and the apprehended object are not found, and where an unstained luminosity arises like the essence of the sun. So in that non-dualistic state, all there is is luminosity that has the quality of knowing and brilliance like the sun. No center does it have, no limit, blissful, clear, and free from thought. Those are the three main qualities that one uh, encounters in the perfected meditative state, which you'll see written about over and over again in various places. Bliss or joyful or pleasant, uh, experience clear or knowing sometimes luminous clear luminous knowing being synonymous and then free from thought not entangled with discursive thought not engaging with the discursive thought emptiness appearance there but a single thing why can't they get along Sending the alternatives of being and non-being, samsara and nirvana, are not considered different. The knower and the known have but a single nature. Beyond equality and non-equality, the dharmata is seen. Seen uh, used uh, figuratively, because there is no apprehending, there's no subject that apprehends the dharmata to, as the, uh, the dharmata, sorry, as the object but it's experienced. This is the vision of the sublime truth, the cause of primal wisdom. And later, seeing suchness, the mind's eye will gain perfection. It's an interesting progression. So, uh, first the dharmata is seen, and later seeing suchness, the mind's eye will gain perfection. The mind's eye being prajna, which transforms into jnana, so transcendent knowledge transforming into primordial wisdom, non-dual. Uh, of the Dharmakaya, sorry, seeing suchness, the mind's eye will gain perfection of the Dharmakaya of the conquerors. Actually, uh, and later, seeing suchness in the way just described, as opposed to some later stage, my apologies. The mind's eye will gain perfection of the dharmakaya of the conquerors. So by dwelling in this state of experiencing dharmata, we then experience Buddhahood and the, the, 
the formless body of the Buddha uh, appears, the Dharmakaya. Therefore, let the fortunate at all times stay in meditative evenness. The nature of the mind is without origin. It's a state of purity, just like the sky. We're unable to find where the mind comes from. The mind of, of the present. You know, if we look into our mind right now at any time, we can't find where it comes from. Um, it is a state of purity, just like the sky, wherein dissolving like the clouds, the mental factors are not found. Uh, we'll go into mind and mental factors a lot next week, so I'll leave that one till then. With undistracted minds free uh, from concepts free, let those of middle scope remain in even meditation in this unaltered primal state of suchness. Dwelling as long as we can in this state of combined shamatha and vipassana, uh, absence of discursiveness, but clear knowing, not a dullness. Like an ocean calm and limpid, clear, let them be waveless, free of the turbidity, turbidity of subject-object apprehension, and in a sky-like state, both luminous and empty. And let them rest unclouded by discursive thought, not falling into one or side or the other, not accepting or rejecting, free from hope or fear. Let them rest on moving firm like Sumeru, the king of mountains. Let them rest within a state that, like a mirror, is both pure and clear, wherein appearing things rest, sorry, reflect without impediment. Let them rest quite naturally in a state of primal openness and freedom that is like a rainbow, pure and clear, free from sinking and disturbance like archers undistracted. Let them, free from mental movement, rest in primal wisdom, uncontrived. Nice image of archers, the, uh, imagining somebody who's got the bow drawn and is totally, completely focused and present and with uh, great strength. Uh, Derek? Yes, ma'am. Um, I'm just curious about um, the way this is uh, phrased, this um, let them, let them, let them. Who's he addressing exactly? Those of uh, uh, moderate and basic scope. I but, but he's. It's a. There's sort of a plea to this. No, let them. It's, how should? How do you take that? I take that as him saying, "I hope you may remain like that." Ah, okay. Please, please remain like this, or instead of. You know, he's not being, he's not commanding, but he said, so let your mind remain like this, basically. Uh-huh. Okay. Let them rest with no, he's, he's like, it's like an aspiration prayer. Let those who aspire in meditation succeed. Let them rest with no hope and fear. Let them uh, be like those who have known, uh, sorry, who know they have achieved their goal. This is the concentration, pure intrinsically, the union of calm abiding of deep insight remaining in the unborn state is calm abiding. Stabilized in the state of uh, no beginning and no end, deep insight is to rest in clarity, knowing that state and emptiness without any um, characteristics, without discursiveness. Calm abiding and deep insight are not separate. 
but are joined without division in their single nature. They have the same object, they have the same base, and they have they occur at the same time. Now the mind is seen profound and peaceful, free of all mentation. Neither word nor concept can express it. This primal wisdom, completely non-conceptual, of light, in quotation marks, is called luminous wisdom that has gone beyond. Light of knowing. Through seeing it, the mind becomes completely peaceful. For everything occurring outside or within, there is but slight engagement, whether of adopting or rejecting it. Rejecting. So, in this in a state of perfect samadhi, we're not cut off completely, but we're not engaging with the objects of the senses. Whether adopting or rejecting, there arises from a state of emptiness compassion that is utterly impartial. Spontaneously, compassion arises from the experience of emptiness, the absence of distinction between me and other, this and that. Compassion rises impartial. One acts with virtue for oneself and everyone else, exhorting others to do the same. One takes delight in solitude, abandons distraction and busy occupation. All conduct, even in one's dreams, is virtuous. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. One, will, one is well upon the path to freedom, then through increased habituation. I thought we were there, but I guess there's more to it. Primal wisdom, luminosity of mind uh, grow greater than before. One understands that things as they appear are but illusions and the stuff of dreams. Within the state of non-duality, they, they all are of one taste. One sees that they are neither born nor unborn in primal wisdom of what's called increase of light is gained completely free of thought, enhanced by joy and meditative concentration. The Long Chenpa is now going through four stages of uh, progressive accomplishment in meditation that are, that are a very famous scheme used in the, in the Nyingma lineage for describing the stages of accomplishment. The first one is on the page before the, the word light that had... Uh, quotation marks in uh, stanza 16 towards the end of that stanza. Light. That's the first stage. Usually that's called appearance. And um, then in stanza 18 where we just went through towards the end of that stanza, the third before third line before it, primal wisdom of increase of light. So uh, more commonly called increase. It's the first appearance and then increase. So uh, appearance is like the, the uh, primal wisdom first appears. We first catch a glimpse, so to speak, of primal wisdom, primordial wisdom. And then that experience expands, increases. Now both body and mind, back to stand the 19, are much purer than before through, through skillful means and wisdom, stainless understanding dawns. Through clairvoyance and compassion, one brings benefits to others. So one gains supernatural powers, such as knowing the minds of other beings. For some sorrow, one experiences a sorrowful revulsion and is decided to abandon it. So this also is accompanied by uh, 
definitive renunciation of samsara, one understands that things are dreamlike, even as one dreams of them, which means while one is awake, one's body has no lice or parasites. <laughs> well, this may seem funny to us, but in his day, and in many of the days before him, and many of the days after him, people were plagued by lice and parasites. Mm -hmm. Uh, they didn't have the hygiene that we have these days. And uh, uh, beings that uh, succeeded in meditation somehow were uh, bereft of such vermin, sort of magically, interestingly enough. Uh, and one remains in concentration free from sinking and excitement, the two main obstacles, both day and night. So all night long, as you sleep, you're in meditative concentration. Those who are like this come swiftly to the paths of noble beings. Subsequently, through increased familiarity, there comes a concentration even greater than the one preceding it. And the sun of realization rises, never seen before. So the third stage is now this, this uh, much greater experience of uh, the nature of mind. Quality the single nature of all things is seen, and thence one has possessed the stainless powers of vision and of preternatural cognition. One begins to see Buddha fields all over the place. Uh, hundreds, thousands, millions strong, the stainless primal wisdom of the noble ones, meaning those of the path of seeing and above, is manifestly gained in the wisdom of light's culmination. So, one will have achieved the path of uh, seeing or first stage of enlightenment. And so this is, uh, we had uh, light, increase of light, and then light's culmination. Normally these are called appearance, increase, and attainment. Through its increase, growing ever more sublime, sublime unencumbered concentrations and qualities ensue where in the presence or the absence of con conception, whether in the presence or absence of con conception. So um, whether one, even, even while one is engaging in conceptual thought, it doesn't change this experience. Ultimate reality remains the same in which are found vast clouds of dharanis and stainless primal wisdom. Now in the, in the notes, he explained dharani as memorization, the quality of memorization, but it also refers to uh, uh, strings of syllables that embody the, the dharma, the teachings. It's stainless primal wisdom. Then the states of meditation and non-meditation mingle. So eventually, initially, when one achieves the first stage of enlightenment, it happens in meditation. And then leaving meditation, uh, we once again experience relative conventional reality dualistically, but gradually, eventually, those two come together. States of meditation and non-meditation mingle, and what is constantly in meditative equipoise. In the notes, this was described as happening at the eighth boomy. Um, manifesting emanations past imagining, one may enter boundless Buddha fields and enjoy the vision of primordial wisdom the channels being purified 
So now he's going to describe the inner subtle body of uh, the yogic system of Buddhism. The channels, or other in Sanskrit, the nadis are being purified. The wind mind, or prana mind, is endowed with supreme qualities. Now, primordial wisdom is extremely vast and pure, and thus is called light's utter culmination. So this is the fourth stage. So appearance, increase, attainment, and full attainment is the fourth, the, the, uh, the common translation for the, full, the fourth one. He's calling out these translators saying light's utter culmination, usually full attainment. By such means does the noble paths attain completion and enlightenment is swiftly reached, such as the vehicle of the essence of clear light, by means of which the fortunate accomplish the result of freedom in this very life. So he's what he's describing is uh, uh, without using a scheme of a particular type of meditation, he's describing the experience of uh, the progressive experience of attainment or enlightenment in the Vajrayana tradition, which uh, is all about um, uh, light, is all about uh, bringing together the different lights that light up all sentient beings. That is the nature of their awareness of all sentient beings is this light. And uh, the final stage is the uh, union of the different lights that exist in a human being. And since I have no idea what I'm talking about, you can't really ask me any questions about that. Um, those of least capacity should practice thus. They should train in calm abiding and deep insight separately. So now we're back to sort of normal realm of meditative practice for you and me. When both are stable, they should practice them inseparably in union and train in countless meditative methods. Once you stabilize Shamatha Vipassana, then you can do lots of different meditations. They should start by cultivating calm abiding. They should take their seat in solitude, count their breaths in and out. So this is a traditional version of Shamatha, counting breaths in and out. Now you see, if you've studied the profound treasury of the ocean of Dharma by Chogyam Trungpa, in the meditation chapter, you'll see a lot of this stuff is in there in an in a, in a interesting way. And Chopramshe goes through counting of breaths and he talks about it a little bit. He says, well, I don't think it's really that helpful. I don't think we need to, to do that. But it is traditionally the starting point. Uh, their breath being visualized in various colors. So he alludes to others of doing other things with the breath. And uh, there are many other things that are done with breath meditation. Their breath being visualized in different, in various colors. And in this way, for several days, they should tame their thoughts. Then let them meditate on love and on the other three unbounded attitudes. And uh, Longchenpa is famous for having designed retreats that uh, have this. Uh, amazingly structured progression through different stages of meditation experience and practices where each day literally will have like a list of 30 day retreat and each day you do a certain thing. So day number, we're on like day number, I don't know, four or something here. Uh, Eric? Yes, ma'am. Um, wouldn't doing these kinds of visualizations help you later if you're a Vajrayana practitioner? 
that's of uh, that's a debated. You know, that's uh, uh, questionable. Uh huh. They they can delay your uh, achievement of shamatha because uh, for us they're uh, entertaining. Uh-huh. You know, there has to the what he doesn't go into and Trumpramshi goes into in great depth and skill is the is the way that we uh, gradually learn to disengage from discursive thought and that the traditional system presents a, a sort of a suppression of discursive thought as the way to achieve that mm. the uh, uh, the tradition that's passed down from teacher to student the ear the spoken tradition is uh, the way that he describes boredom developing mm-hmm. That, that we need tired, exhausted of our discursive thoughts and learn how to disengage from them while they're still there, not, not suppressing them. Suppressing them works if you're in a very structured retreat situation. You can actually suppress and make progress, but it's very difficult for, for beings like us that are engaging in, in activities in life to successfully progress through the suppression method of thoughts. And so doing various practices early on with the breath ends up being entertainment. And uh, didn't he, Trung Yom Trumpa, also talk a lot about boredom? Totally, yes. Cool cool boredom. He's famous pointing that term, cool boredom. Do you think that was geared towards, more towards Westerners then? I do, I do. I, I think there's a certain difference in teaching Westerners from Tibetans. I think Westerners, our minds are so much more active than Tibetans. You know, you got to think of the lifestyle of most Tibetans is they're outside in these vast, barren mountain reaches most of their day, tending to yaks and their flocks, and, and not a lot going on. <laughs> kind of like lockdown. So they have, they, ex- they have direct experience of vast space, whereas here we have total fullness yeah. and not much space. Yeah, totally. Mm, yeah. Thank you. Also then cultivate the four boundless attitudes and uh, cult- uh, meditate on twofold bodhicitta, which is the ultimate and relative, focusing thereafter on some wholesome object like a deity, uh, such as the Buddha the drawing of a deity, a scripture, and so forth, and less than rest and meditation one-pointedly without distraction. So in the traditional uh, meditation manuals, there's a progression of, of a variety of different types of meditative objects that go from more concrete objects, external images, to uh, internal uh, visualized images or the breath, and then have uh, finally to having no object at all. Um, settle and, and basically the, the technique that Trumper Rinpoche taught starts from the breath and then dissolves into no object from there. Settle in this way, the mind is rendered serviceable. It does not stray to other things, but rests upon its object. Resting there, it stays in meditative equipoise. Body, speech, and mind are filled with bliss, which is one of the experiences from a completely settled mind. I'm told, I 
but not know, and calm abiding focus and unmoving is achieved. Training and deep insight follows all things appearing hourly, both samsara and nirvana, like illusions and stuff of dreams. So uh, this is the initial stage of Vipassana practices, understanding that external phenomena, the world around us, is like a dream, appears appears like an illusion, like a dream, because it has no essence, and yet it appears. They're like reflections, apparitions, echoes, cities in the clouds. So there's this traditional list of eight or 12 analogies for the way that uh, empty appearances manifest. Tricks of sight, mirages, all without reality, appearing there, empty by their nature. And by the way, the second volume of this trilogy, of which this is the first volume of Finding Rest, the second volume is Finding Rest in Meditation, and there he goes through these eight experiences of uh, the illusory nature of appearance. Uh, 28. Everything resembles space without intrinsic being. Thus, practitioners should stay in meditative equipoise, free from all conception of the unborn nature. They will understand that outer things are without self and that the object that is there appearing and the object apprehended in their mind are both without existence. So it's a little touch upon this this uh, notion of how cognition happens with an object appearing and the object apprehended. So remember those terms. There's the appearing object and the apprehended object, both without existence. Then the mind should be examined. So first first stage of Vipassana is looking at the dreamlike nature of phenomena. And uh, sort of reminiscent of a system many of us have studied uh, by famously called the seven-point mind training. Does anybody remember the bodhicitta slogans? What's what's the first bodhicitta slogan? Absolute bodhicitta, sorry. Uh, Mary Beth. Good. Thank you. You didn't unmute, but I know you got it right. Elizabeth, can oh, you... Train in the preliminaries, yeah. Oh, sorry. The, uh, what's the, the next one after that? That's not the absolute bodhicitta slogans. What's the first one? The one right after that. Regard all dharmas as dreams. Oh, so that's exactly what Longchamp is talking about. And then we have, um, then the mind should be examined thus. You, oh mind. And you're supposed to talk to your mind just like this. The tone is important though. Without reality, and yes, and yet immersed in thought, busy with accepting or rejecting objects of the senses with truth and falsehood, sorrow, joy, indifference, and yet there's no identifying you. I can't freaking find you. At first, where the hell do you come from? Where, do, where are you now and where do you go? What is your color and your shape when the mind is scrutinized with such reflections? Here is what is found. He gives you the answer. At first... This is cool that he gives an answer. First, the mind is empty of a cause for its arising. You know, you look for where does it come from. It doesn't seem to come from anywhere. Then it is empty of a dwelling place. It's sort of easy, the same answer over and over again. It's empty and it's abiding. And at the last, it's empty of cessation. It doesn't go anywhere. It has no shape or color. There's no grasping or identifying it. 
The former mental state has ceased, so the past mind doesn't exist. The one to come is not yet born. And in the present mind has no abiding outside or within. We can't find the present mind. Those who thus investigate will understand that mind exceeds conceptual construction and is similar to space. So this is the empty essence quality of mind. Then they should lay aside reflection as to what the mind is like and rest as if reposing from fatigue. They should not think of anything investigation laid aside reposing in the state where everything is even and beyond duality. So there's this quality of exhausting the mind by uh, going through these investigations of trying to understand the mind, trying to understand this feeling of there being some uh, thing that we talk about as the mind inside us. And gradually that leading to uh, an experience of conceptual exhaustion where you let go and just rest. By this means they'll understand the person that's attached to I is without self. So he has three pronouns there. There's a person, there's an I, and there's a self. But the I in quotes, which was interesting, but the person is like is a, a relative term that refers to the uh, conglomeration of the aggregates. It's just called the person. Doesn't mean it has any special reality. The person that's attached to this notion, this this fiction of an I, is without a self. It's without an I. The clinging mind has no intrinsic being. Has no essence, then primal wisdom uncontrived appears. When you, when you realize this empty quality of the mind, primal wisdom, knowing, will appear, which are joined both calm abiding and deep insight where mind and what appears to it are not two separate things, so non-dual experience, but are like water and the moon therein reflected. This this uh, common image of the reflection of the moon and the water. You can't really separate them. The, the reflection is, is uh, not separate from the moon, but not, uh, not the same as the moon. Dividing them when it's diluted in samsara. So this is what we do all the time. We divide these two, the mind and what appears to it. Understanding that they are not two, one journeys into peace which is an epithet of nirvana beyond all sorrow. Therefore, one should train like this in non-duality. So, beginning with a glimpse, what is non-dual awareness? Experiencing non-dual awareness by exhausting the dualistic conceptualizing mind. And in order to exhaust it, you really need to work it. You don't just exhaust something, you know, by just thinking, oh, I'm exhausted. You actually have to do a lot of effort. And then that exhausts the mind. And when it rests and when it gives up the struggle, then this non-dual uh, sort of uh, almost like subconscious level of cognition arises. Uh, let's see. The unborn nature of phenomena is but the nature of the mind. The nature of the mind is pure and without stain, which should rest without conceptual constructs and empty luminosity, unstained. 
The troubles of defilement were thereby be completely pacified, and in great primordial wisdom, free of concepts, one will stay. So once you gain confidence in this uh, non-conceptual, non-dualistic quality or aspect or state of mind, this primal mind, defilements dissolve, and uh, one experiences this non-dual wisdom, knowledge, preterned natural cognition, and concentration, samadhi, will begin. The non-duality of known and knower will be understood with freedom from extremes seen as the middle way. So one will know the freedom of, of extremes, the extremes in this case being that the mind exists or does not exist, or that phenomena exist or do not exist, and one will not stray into either of those extremes. Then no object is observed within the space-like mind. So a cognition, a, an awake, clear state where there's no sense of subject and object, in the space-like mind of which the nature is devoid of thought elaboration, and in the state in that state where there is neither meditator nor something to be meditated on, there's no doer, nothing to be done. This primordial condition is the stainlessness of pure enlightenment. There's now an outer object found, and what appears is like a trick of sight. We're going to see a number of times this way of explaining, and we've already seen it a number of times, this way of trying to explain that Outer phenomena are not separate from the mind, but are not the mind. You know, so not the usual chitta-matra or mind-only scheme where everything is mind. But instead, uh, everything is not separate from the mind, but everything is not the mind. Not external, but not internal. The image of the moon on water, just like that analogy where the moon is not really in the water. The, the moon and its reflection are not separate or different. No apprehending subject does one find. There's no conceptual movement not falling to this side or to the other. The mind and what appears to it are not two separate things. There is but the state of wisdom that has gone beyond profound and peaceful, free from thought, luminous, uncompounded, ultimate reality, like nectar, is assimilated. He's, he's uh, repeating the terms that the Buddha used to describe his enlightenment. Profound, peaceful, luminous, uncompounded, ultimate, uh, a nectar-like bliss. Free of clinging, concentration on the vast expanse is a great ship that crosses to the other shore of the ocean of the triple world, the desire, form, and formless realms. There upon the blissful ground at the other shore, the mind is an unbroken blissful stream. It has attained the state of natural great perfection. Through the stillness of the mind, calm abiding nature of the empty dharmakaya, aspect of the mind and through its luminosity, the deep insight nature of appearance of the rupakaya quality two accumulations skillful means and wisdom the generation and perfection stages which are correlated with those two are achieved deep insight brings to birth the wisdom of realization and in this wisdom calm abiding causes one to rest 
But we start with calm abiding, we cultivate deep insight, and then we return to calm abiding, resting in the, in the conjoined deep insight and resting. And, uh, there's a very good footnote uh, about this on 119. Uh, so let's skip to the footnotes for a second. Footnote 119. For those of us that have pages, it's on page 292. And for those of you that don't have page numbers, it's footnote number 119. And I want to thank Mary Beth for alerting me to this. It is through mental stillness. Uh, namely, the emptiness aspect free of thoughts, that calm abiding, the perfection stage, and the accumulation of wisdom, which are the cause of the Dharmakaya, are spontaneously accomplished. On the other hand, it is through the mind's luminosity, its appearance aspect. So we have two aspects of the mind, emptiness and luminosity. Emptiness is the non-appearing, Luminosity is the appearing and manifestation aspect of the mind. It is through the mind's luminosity, its appearance aspect, that deep inside the generation stage and the accumulation of merit, the cause of the rupakai, are also spontaneously accomplished. At that moment, the six uh, transcendent virtue, ultimate transcendent virtues, paramitas free from conceptual focus, are brought to perfection. And then he gives these great quote uh, about the sort of Prajnaparamita way of describing the six perfections and this sort of Zen negative methodology and terminology. The absence of clinging is generosity. Non-observance is discipline, spontaneous discipline. Non-abiding in extremes is patience. So not uh, sort of taking refuge and enduring or spacing out. The absence of effort is diligence. <laughs> the absence of one-pointedness is meditative concentration. One-pointedness is the path that we cultivate to experience meditative concentration, which has no pointedness. The absence of concepts is wisdom. Again, we use concepts to then experience wisdom. So let's return to the text and skip the rest of this, if that's okay. Uh, so we were on the end of stanza 38, deep insight brings to birth the wisdom of realization and this wisdom calm abiding causes one to rest. 39, when the mind is not at all immersed in the apprehender or the apprehended subject and object in things and non-things, then that in the ultimate expanse from primal wisdom, never part of the mind and mental factors, utterly subside and are no more. So when there's no object of engagement, then the, the, the structure of the mind fizzles, dissolves. In the mind's nature, pure from the beginning, adventitious thoughts are purified. Nine absorptions, the uh, these are the uh, form absorptions of uh, the first and second, third and fourth, what are called the f those four absorption states of the form realms. And then there's the four absorptions of the <coughs> formless realms, um, space, consciousness, 
um, neither perception nor non-perception and nothing whatsoever. And then there's the cessation absorption. It's the ninth miraculous power, preternatural cognition are achieved, countless kinds of concentrations. Clouds of Dharanis are likewise gained spontaneously. So uh, in the Mahayana literature, there's thousands of different types of samadhis. So when they say concentration, they're translating samadhi. There's samadhis of all different types. They just come up with like endless cool types of samadhis. There's the subway samadhi, there's the elevator samadhi, there's the bus samadhi, there's the pizza samadhi. Basically, everything you do in your lives is a different type of samadhi from the mind. 41, in the desire realm. So this really means uh, leaving the mind of the desire realm. And then he's going to describe the form realm absorptions. One focuses in a single point. Then there comes the first samadhi, the first absorption with a concentration qualified by joy and bliss. So this is the traditional presentation of the absorption states, which uh, we have not focused on in our tradition, hardly uh, at, at, at all. Probably people are not familiar with these because we don't pay any attention to these absorption states in the Tibetan tradition. But in the Mahayana tradition, these are still mentioned. So the first of uh, the absorption states has these five qualities of joy and bliss, two types of discernment, gross and subtle, and then, uh, sorry, four qualities. Usually there's a fifth, but he's given it four. From this there comes the second absorption with a concentration qualified likewise by joy and bliss and clarity of mind and by subtle but not gross discernment. So you leave behind gross discernment. These are fine points that, that uh, this way of describing these different stages of absorptions. Then there comes the third samadhi, moist with joy and bliss, and with a concentration free from all discernment, gross and subtle. And from the third, there comes the fourth, equipped with beneficial qualities, and with a concentration marked just by joy, so leaving behind bliss. So one by one, these stages leave behind one of the qualities, one of the aspects of the prior stage. And there's just uh, joy and not bliss. Bliss is crude and joy is refined and uh, experiences equanimity. Uh, plus beneficial qualities. When you achieve the fourth absorption, you achieve all sorts of preternatural cognitions and things like that. Arising from the fourth, the limpid mind. So now we're gonna go into the formless absorptions pure like space attains to the absorption called unbounded space and that's the state wherein all things are but the mind devoid of all elaboration the absorption called unbounded consciousness from this there comes the unelaborate state wherein the mind and what appears to it are not perceived the absorption known as utter nothingness so first we had unbounded space then unbounded consciousness now we have nothingness and that for within this state where the mind is free of all conception of existence and non-existence, there comes the absorption called non-existence and not non-existence. Then the mind producing manifold defilement ceases naturally and achieves a state of peace, the cessation of absorption. When these nine successive stages of absorption have been trained in step by step or without order, leaping here and there, there's also this notion that one can achieve them not in a progressive order, but 
One will know all actions and states of mind and past and future lives of others and oneself. And one will see what births will follow after death. And all things now repeated will be seen. So these are the absorption states that the Buddha cultivated under studying under different teachers, six teachers. He learned and perfected these absorption states. And he concluded that they don't lead to enlightenment. But uh, when he when he was sitting under the Bodhi tree, he did practice these nine. He went from one to nine and then back down to four. And so four became the basis for experiencing insight. Uh, let's see. One will have the power to multiply one thing and make it many. So these are some of the magical powers that you achieve. You can multiply one thing and make it many if you're short on money, you just multiply it. And free from all defilement, we will know things in their nature and their multiplicity. These are the two aspects of, uh, of wisdom, knowing things, knowing the nature of phenomena, their empty, luminous nature, their empty and appearing nature, and then knowing their multiplicity, the way things arise uh, by interdependent origination. One will behold the Buddha fields, replete with blissful Buddhas and their heirs. Since at that moment, one will fully realize that phenomena, but illusions, one will achieve mirage-like concentration. Since one's mind will have no torment, all impurity subside, one will have experience of the concentration of the stainless moon. So he goes through this, this famous scheme of three samadhis that are, that are sort of basic in the Mahayana, of uh, mirage-like, uh, stainless moon and then uh, like space like samadhi since there are others hundreds, thousands, countless because the meaning of the teachings that by virtue of deep insight has been understood um, is uh, fully and one-pointedly retained through calm abiding so um, one understands all dharmas, all teachings, powers of concentration and of dharani are jointly and spontaneously achieved by gradually treading the five paths, freedom is attained on the lesser path. So then he goes through the five paths. And those were outlined in that handout. I circulated that chart by Gunther. So I'm doing a terrible job of going through this quickly. Uh, am I going too slow? Would people do like this detail or should we speed up? Faster, slower, same. Good. <laughs> Somebody give me the finger there. <laughs> oh, a foot. He put up his foot. Follow one taste. I'm sorry. I said it's all of one taste. Ah, there you go. There you go. Um, One undertakes it. So, in the traditional scheme of the five paths of the Buddhist tradition, they're mapped onto these things called the 37 limbs of awakening. And let's see, do I have the ability to screen share? I do. Screen. Screen share. I'll screen share.
here. Here's the scheme of the 37 limbs of enlightenment that uh, are mapped onto the five paths, the 37 facets of self-growth. Uh, mapped onto the five paths, so the preparatory stage is the path of accumulation. The first level has the four foundations of mindfulness. Um, body, this, this word here is body, translated as body. He, you can see how weird his translations are. Uh, feeling, mind, and dharmas. That word there means dharmas. So this is the traditional scheme. So I circulated this so you can study this at your leisure and get some sense of the different stages of the path. So passive accumulation has these three stages of low, intermediate, renunciation, preventing unwholesome, and cultivating wholesomeness. And this involves willingness or uh, intention eagerness, faith, perseverance, and then uh, checking the mind. And the highest level, this, uh, these four footholds, willingness, perseverance, attentiveness, and discursiveness. And then he gives the uh, five obstacles to shamatha and their eight antidotes. In case you're unfamiliar with those, you have a nice reference there with the Tibetan. And we have the, the path to preparation called the link-up stage here, and there's two stages, two parts to that, uh, each of which has two subcategories, warmth, and then uh, highest um, what is it, maximum level. How does these guys do it? Let's see, so one undertakes the four close mindfulnesses of body, feelings, consciousness, phenomena. On the middle level, by means of the four factors, and then uh, the genuine restraints. Okay, so 47, there are four stages of the path of joining, warmth and peak, so maximum level. And each of them cultivates these five things. These are called the five strengths, and then the five powers. It's the same thing, but they're, uh, they're sort of supercharged, they're on steroids. And so here we have the, the second two. Um, he calls them acceptance and supreme mundane level in stanza 47. One meditates most excellently, excellently on these five forces, confidence and the rest. On the path of seeing the ground of perfect joy, one undertakes intensive training in the seven elements leading to enlightenment, generally called the seven wings of enlightenment. These seven here, which the translation in our book gives uh, confidence, diligence, mindfulness, discernment, concentration, joy, and flexibility. And flexibility is very important because, as you see here, uh, none of these translations match up. So you have to be very flexible in your mind to be able to deal with this complexity. Otherwise, it's terribly frustrating. And then uh, you have, uh, on the path of seeing, you have the, the first of the Bhumis of the Bodhisattva, the ground of perfect joy. Reading stanza 48, one undertakes intensive training in the seven elements leading to enlightenment, confidence, diligence, mindfulness, discernment. I just did that, sorry, the seven wings. Sorry, I'm screwed up. Here we go. The nine 
49, the nine grounds of the path of meditation are based upon a threefold subdivision, lesser, medium, and great. Um, each one being subdivided three times. So this is this famous scheme of having 81 levels of the path of meditation because you have nine stages with three levels, each one divided three times. The lesser, medium, and great division of uh, divisions of the lesser level and so forth. So you have this funny scheme that goes there's there's the lower of the low, the middle of the low, the higher of the low, and then so on and so forth. These grounds are the immaculate, the luminous, the radiant. So then he repeats the uh, the nine boomies from boomies two through ten. Hard to uphold the clearly manifest, the far progressed seven, and then the pure grounds, grounds eight through ten are immovable, perfect intellect and cloud of dharma. Therein one practices the noble eightfold path, right view, thought, speech, conduct, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and right concentration. Hopefully you're wondering, why is, what a weird scheme, like this basic uh, scheme of the eightfold path is like way out in the boomies. How does that make sense? Why is it mapped that way? And that's a very good question. That can't really be answered. It's sort of like they just wanted to fit everything into this list. Anyway, coming back to our text. The training on the four paths and the 37 things that lead one to enlightenment is all concluded. The ground of no more learning, the fifth path, is attained. Nirvana that abides in no extremes. So it's helpful to um, to just know the scheme of the the uh, the five paths, particularly the first two, which is where we are. Most of us are probably are. 51, without traversing of the grounds and paths, there's no gaining to Buddhahood. A Buddhahood that stays in no extreme. All who reach this freedom after many kalpas, several lives, or just a single life, rely upon this method. Therefore, those uh, who enter the, either the vehicles of cause or of result, sutra or tantra, should understand and, and tread upon these grounds and paths through the essence of profound and peaceful luminosity may all impurities within the minds of being disappear exhausted in this world through long lists schedules of paths and stages and terms and different translations all due to attachment to conceptuality may the minds today find rest Next chapter is fairly simple by comparison, and we could probably go through it. Shall we go for it? Chapter chapter 12, the three aspects of meditative concentration. So I won't go through uh, every stanza in that way. Uh, but the three aspects in the first stanza are the person by whom the concentration is achieved, and then there's the method by which the concentration is accomplished, and then the aspect of the concentration itself, non-duality. And uh, in terms of the person, we need, it gives all these traditional qualities of uh, not being into uh, socializing, not 
getting being addicted to Facebook or Instagram, Snapchat or whatever the heck you uh, is popular, but uh, physically withdrawing from the distractions, uh, distracting occupations of this uh, worldly life. And uh, then we should be endowed with faith, have conscience, careful, perfect discipline. It stands up for um, take delight in solitude. We're not lazy. Uh, we're not into gossiping or talking endlessly or depressed, have few acquaintances. Uh, we're not into uh, occupying ourselves all the time, hanging out in towns. And, and, but we like living in lonely places. Now, some of us may end up in lonely places without necessarily liking them, but this is a good way to view your stay-at-home order as a retreat, right? Obviously. Um, Six, those who don't, do not look for happiness in this life or the life to come or the wish of the peace of a nirvana for themselves alone. So eschewing the uh, shravaka mentality of escaping reality just for ourselves who sorrow at samsara and decide to leave a desire and freedom from samsara for the sake of all beings, the bodhisattvas, by such as these, as concentration swiftly gains. So that's the person now regarding the aspect of the means. Uh, whereby this is achieved when the five obscuring factors are removed. So these, starting off with the five basic obscurations uh, to meditation or sleepiness, dullness, agitation, depression, and doubt. Some of them are similar, sleepiness and dullness and so forth, but they have, they're described with slight nuances. Um, one strives to attain calm abiding and deep inside the union of those two. And he talks about which obscurations obscure, which of calm abiding or deep insight, and which apply to both. Stanza eight, when there's no calm abiding, deep insight is a state of moving thought, deprived of insight, calm abiding is a neutral and amorphous state. But when they're united, then things come into being. Uh, let's see, calm abiding is achieved through resting body, speech, and mind. When, with regard to things all equal in their nature, one's thoughts subside, this is the chief characteristic of calm abiding. To concentrate one's mind upon a single point of reference is the attendant feature that brings about that characteristic. Uh, there's different ways of going about this, as I mentioned before, using or not using an apparent form and concentrating outwardly or inwardly. These are four means by which the mind is focused. And it goes through them. Uh, what those means, we can skip that. At the end of that stanza, this is how calm abiding is achieved. 11, when by these means one point of calm abiding is produced, it should joyfully be mingled with the wisdom of deep insight, therefore nurturing and stabilizing it for calm abiding to progress. Uh, it's essential to bring into line one's way of living. In order to achieve shamatha, you need to have a very chill, uh, type of lifestyle. Well, for those who wish to have deep insight, a state of limpid clarity of mind or open clarity of mind, discernment is the primary uh, component. Discernment, we would say introspection or investigation or uh, discrimination, resting evenly within a thought-free state is an attendant feature. 
Now those those two may seem at odds, resting evenly in discernment, but it's resting evenly with a knowing quality of discernment, discerning what's going on. Being able to do that without dispelling that restful state. So it's the sort of balance where discernment is not that strong, but it's a subtle level of discernment. And this is a, a fine point about the cultivation of shamatha and vipassana that we don't always talk about that much, but uh, we tend to think that shamatha needs to be completely thought free. We know that shamatha, uh, we have this idea of the watcher. So that's the incipient beginning stage of that discernment that then that begins with just noticing whether we're on the object or not, whether we're present or not, whether we're scattered or not, or sleepy or agitated or not, that knowing quality. And then once shamatha is attained, that knowing quality then is turned upon the knower itself, the, the mind itself, to discern the nature of the mind and to look at the empty, luminous, empty, yet appearing nature of the mind. So that discernment then becomes the main feature of, of Vipassana and transforms into Prajna. Prajna, that is the understanding of the empty, luminous nature of mind. Um, uh, Thirteen, in terms of how we view phenomena and the nature of them, one should look upon them, the former phenomena, in accordance with the eight examples of illusion. And one should train to see their nature as space-like emptiness. And as one rests in such a state, primordial wisdom will arise. So he's talking about insight, Vipassana. When it's when the deep insight is unclear and stale, one should exercise it in regard to different things. So when our insight becomes sort of uh, dull, we need to look at different aspects, uh, which which usually is done in the scheme of the skandhas, ayatanas, and dhatus, understanding the five skandhas, the five aggregates of our experience, understanding uh, when consciousness arises that there's a sense base and a sense object and a sense cognition that arises from those, and then understanding different ways of cognizing through conceptual understanding or through sense experience, uh, the thinking. Well, the way, the way you hear, um, so, Chris, hard to hear you. Oh, sorry. Um, let's see what should exercise in with regard to different things and view all of these things purely as the inseparable union of illusion and emptiness. So initially discriminating between different aspects of our experience and then understanding their nature as being luminous, empty appearances. And if one gets too discursive in this, it sounds proliferate, go back to calm abiding, and then one will see a space-like luminosity, which he talked about in the prior chapter, an empty clarity devoid of mental movement, the clouds of the two veils, which are clashes and cognitive obscurations, will uh, melt away at times there will appear a luminosity that's vast and ocean-like, a limpid sphere where all things fade away. The state of no thought will be gained all by itself. Enhancing is accomplished by applying this deep insight in the way one lives, and in this way, deep insight will be swiftly gained. So then applying that insight to uh, post what we call uh, 
daily life post-meditation. This union of shamatha vipassana is a state of mind where stillness is the same as movement. So when we're when we're thinking, it doesn't move us from stillness. And when we're experiencing stillness, we don't get absorbed in a dullness. In both cases, the main feature is primordial concept-free wisdom, while an undistracted freedom from discursive thoughts is an intended feature. So that's the feature that leads us to that experience, is being undistracted without discursive thought. Um, then the next quality, by resting in whichever state of mind arises, stillness or proliferation, thoughts, as soon as they arise, subside. By being continuously mindful, thoughts subside immediately. The stillness is itself the state of evenness within the union of shamatha vipassana, bliss and clarity and no thought manifest these three qualities of meditative attainment. The union of appearance and emptiness of skillful means, appearance and wisdom, emptiness of generation, appearance and perfection, wisdom, all are naturally accomplished by themselves. If this union becomes unclear and still, which should train a common body of deep insight separately, if your mind becomes too scattered, cultivate them separately again. Um, and he gives different ways, different antidotes, the traditional different antidotes for dullness and agitation. He gives this interesting contemplation of looking at the sky. And this is something that Trump Grimshaw introduced to some people, sky gazing. Um, he says here, when the sky is bright and free of clouds, which in turn what's back to, upon the sun, so uh, it's hard to do this when the sun is at midday in the middle of the sky at the zenith, but when it's earlier in the day or later in the day, you turn your back towards the sun and then look in the sky where the sun is not and see if you can, can maintain attentiveness in that open expanse of sky. It's a very interesting practice. Contemplate the open sky, clear, empty state of mind, devoid of thoughts will manifest clear sky in the outer world is but an image of the vast sky of the ultimate reality within. So so this uh, analogy of the primordial luminous nature of mind as being the inner sky or the secret sky. The heart of luminosity is the secret sky. One should understand the meaning of this threefold sky. So there's the outer, inner, and secret sky. The outer sky, there's the clear sky in the outer world, the blue sky. That's blue because we our, our universe rests in the palm of Virochana, who's, uh, who's blue. And uh, then there's the, the inner sky that arises from uh, meditative contemplation. And then there's the secret sky, that is the sky of primal wisdom that's devoid of, of concept. And then concentration is itself the third aspect. So he went to the person, the method, finally the concentration, just briefly, since we're late. This is the accomplishment of non-duality, equal taste, great perfection, not ex beyond accepting and rejecting, uh, beyond grasping, no clinging, no fixation, and space itself. Like space itself, there comes a state beyond bondage and release, nirvana and samsara. This is various images on a looking glass, so too are various things within this state of emptiness. Things will, you will begin to see the illusory nature of phenomena. 
uh, just as various clouds are never parted from the sky's expanse, so too are various takings and rejectings never parted from the nature of the mind. So in this state of non-dual experience where we don't leave the state of samadhi and yet are able to interact with the world. The various rivers are of one taste within the mighty ocean, so too are the various experiences and realizations in the state of meditations. So then he goes through these four aspects of the, the way that the path is presented. First, there's meditation, uh, just as various magical slights are in the realm of sorcery, so too are samsara and nirvana, the state of ultimate reality, pure illusions. This is the meditative the perfection of meditation. And then we have view. So interestingly, he gives meditation first and then view, just as in the 10 direction space is an expanse ungrounded. Likewise is the view, the primordial state of the openness of things, completely ungrounded. This is water poured into water that makes indistinguishably is a state beyond dividing. So too the mind cannot be parted from the nature of the mind. Just as various dreams are in themselves the state of sleep, so too the single S taste of both adopting and rejecting constitutes the sphere of conduct. So now we have conduct. So meditation, view, conduct, a single taste of adopting and rejecting. Just as waves and oceans are but a vast, ex are vast expanse of water, the thought and non-thought are a single state of evenness. Both have the same complete, completely same nature of mind thought and non-thought. Just as one's successful business is a state of satisfaction, so too is the result, the force, the absence of both hope and fear. All things are one, the sphere of great perfection. This is what is to be recognized, the expanse, all-pervading of the ultimate reality of things. So, through the single non-dual taste of different things, indivisibility. Every being find freedom from duality of apprehender, apprehended, self and other, exhausted in this world because they cling deludedly to things. May their minds today find rest. We made it through the hours. <laughs> we completed last week's assignment in two weeks. <laughs> Off by a little bit. So next week we'll do the, the chapters on the nature of mind and, and all that fun stuff. Any uh, comments or questions or suggestions or announcements or jokes or anything? Totally lulled you into sleep, huh? <laughs> Okay, then let's uh, close with our dedication. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing, from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of Sahara, may free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun, brave east, the lotus guard, victim's wisdom below. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you.
you, Derek. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. No, thank you. Nice to see you. Thank you, Derek. Thank you. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, guys. Take care. Bye bye.